hot off the press, peers. The Peers Project has teamed up with our dear friend and renowned not-for-profit organisation, Little Dreamers Australia, to produce a brand spanking new podcast. If you've ever wished there was a subject called How to Handle Your Money 101, this is it. The Money Matters podcast is here to demystify the world of money and help young carers take control of their money, one transaction at a time. Tune into the Money Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Welcome back to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. In this episode, we're talking human trafficking. It's uncomfortable, pervasive, and happening every second. It's also just one of the many problems Emily Kennedy is solving through her tech company, Marinas Analytics. If it seems unimaginable, you'd be half right. Emily doesn't rely on the real world to eliminate it. Instead, she constructs an artificial one. Harnessing the sophistication of AI technology, Emily and her team solve social problems by engineering and reimagining the very tool that has propelled many of them, the internet. In our conversation today, Emily discusses the risk of stagnation, the misconceptions we place on ourselves, and how she's working to solve the wee little task of human trafficking. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, Post it to your Instagram story and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, welcome Emily. Emily. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. I am so excited to be on your podcast. Thanks for having me. Of course. You know, you and I recently connected via LinkedIn. And when I looked into you and all the amazing work that you're doing in the AI and the tech space, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Of course. I'm happy to be on, happy to talk tech and entrepreneurship, some of my favorite subjects. 
Oh, I love it. So amazing. So look, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm an entrepreneur. I am the president and co-founder of my company, Marinus Analytics. And basically, we were founded in 2014 to fight human trafficking and to use particularly tech and AI to do that. So what we look at specifically is sex trafficking that happens online. So every day there are actually hundreds of thousands of ads online that sell sex and some subset of that is where victims of sex trafficking are advertised. And we saw that investigators were having a hard time using that data to find victims. And so uh, we apply AI to it to help them find patterns that result in victim recovery, as well as help them take down larger organized crime networks. Oh, wow. It's it's just, it's so incredible what you do. And when I was reading about it, I was like, oh my goodness, I, it's so great <laughs> that there's a company that's tackling this and that's, you're so dedicated, been doing it for years. You know, I can't wait to dive deeper into your work and and I've got so many questions about it. But before we, we get started on that, I, I'd like to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? Ooh. That's a good one. I like the deep questions. So I grew up in Northern California and only child and grew up just in a place where I could be outside all the time, being a little adventurous, explore, you know, and run on the trails and just, it was a really lovely time. And um, I grew up with parents who really encouraged me to be really adventurous. My dad, particularly, I was thinking about this recently. He never put any limits on what I could do or dream about or want to do, basically. And so when I got to college and, you know, was thinking about going along the traditional paths. I thought I was going to go to law school. I thought, you know, I was going to have this very traditional career. And so when the time came that I was doing my research that ultimately became my company, just started to think about the possibilities. And I think how I was raised to be able to allow myself to think about those allowed me to actually get to that point where it was like, yes, I want to start a company. I don't really even know what that means, but let's do it. <laughs> let's do it anyway. Let's just dive in. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Exactly. I love that. And I think there's so much, I love asking that question because I think it really does relate, you know, and I think so much of our childhood and, our, and our, what our parents did and, and how they kind of brought us up does so relate to what we're doing now. So, you know, you talked about the fact that your dad was always there kind of pushing you to to do or to, you know, not have any limits and, and really step out of your comfort zone. You know, what shape did that, how did that kind of play out in your early years? So, you know, maybe your teens and then heading your decision to head to college. Like what, what was that time like for you? You know, it was interesting. I grew up in a really, my school was really small in, you know, elementary school and high school. And most of my friends were going to college in the state or very close to where we grew up. I think I only had one, maybe two friends who actually even went to another state for college. And so here I was, and I, for some reason at that point of going to college, I was just sick of California. I wanted to get out. I wanted to try something else. And, uh, and so I decided I'm going to look at 
schools on the other side of the country. And so I ended up at Carnegie Mellon, which is in Pennsylvania. So it's like, it took me two flights to get there. And it was like this time of, I wanted to just go completely outside of the box. I didn't know anyone who lived there. I didn't have any family there. Um, but I just wanted to kind of like break out and spread my wings a little bit. And so I had friends who their parents kind of drew a circle and said, you can pick a school in this circle. <laughs> And, uh, they didn't do that at all. And they, and I actually ended up, you know, coming back after, after school, but yeah, they didn't put any limits on that. And I think, I think that was really amazing because I think a lot of us, whether it's parents or friends or whatever, we put these almost even sometimes unconscious limits on ourselves and by extension, each other. Usually it's probably we're limiting ourselves first and then it naturally extends to others. So it's kind of important to think about when you think about like how how you think about yourself is probably influencing others too. It's very true. And I love how you, yeah, alluded to that. I think it's so true. I think we just naturally place these kind of, we, we think, oh, we can't go that far or we can't move there or you know, I, I can't interview someone in the US because I'm based in Oz, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. You know? yeah. And so I think, you know, how can we get better at removing those limitations and really stepping out of our comfort zones? Hmm. I think that is really a daily practice. I think a lot of it is just going for it because for me, whether it's like, let's take public speaking, for example, Whenever I do something that's bigger or scarier or a bigger audience, it extends my comfort zone. So the first time you do it is not comfortable. Once you, you know, expand that zone in some way, but then it becomes more and more comfortable the more you do it. So it's almost like becoming comfortable with discomfort in a way. It's kind of like if you were trying to build muscles, say, and you were trying to do push-ups, you wouldn't stop the moment it became uncomfortable, right? Because that's kind of the whole point is tearing your muscles apart and then building them back together. So yeah, I think you just have to, you know, actually I had, I heard a friend say it this way recently that when thinking about this fear of change or fear of failure or things that keep us from, from stepping out and trying something new or taking risks, I asked her about it and she said that she thinks that the biggest risk is risk of stagnation. So risk that we never change, risk that we're always the same and we never grow. And so it's like, to her, and I think to me too, the risk of staying the same is greater than making little mistakes here and there. And I was, I mean, I'm a recovering perfectionist for sure. Like, and it was so hard to think about saying something wrong or doing, making the wrong choice, but sometimes you just have to step out and you can't, in so many ways, you can't learn until you actually just try it. And you learn so much faster when you try it. So mm-hmm. why not? So true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I completely agree. Amazing. So I want to dive a bit deeper into the story. So, you know, you just made this radical decision to move across the country and to, to really go and study, I think it was a Bachelor of Science in, I think it was History and Public mm-hmm. Policy. And, yes. Uh, yeah, as you mentioned at Carne- Carnegie Mellon. 
And, you know, what, I guess, when you arrived and, and when you kind of got there and you kind of thought, oh, wow, here we are. And you started your, you know, the first year of your four or five years or whatever it was, you know, how was, how did you find that time? You know, what did college teach you about yourself? Well, it was so many years ago now. I'm old now. But <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it was the first thing was that because I grew up in such a small school, it was like, Everybody knows everyone. Everyone knows everybody's family. You've known people for five to 10 years. And so part of it was just this shock in a sense of there's so many more people here who I don't know. But it was, I loved it because it was like, you can make new friends every day. Like you can always be meeting new people. I think it was, you know, in college, you really find your, your people which can be harder in high school, I think, because I don't know, high school, there's different kind of like cliques and hierarchy or I don't know, weirdness that you feel. But I think in college, you find the people who have, you know, the same weird interests that you do. I don't know if it's maybe because it's a bigger pool of people, but um, there was that, which was amazing. And then, I don't know, looking back, I was very, very nerd, like very school focused, sat in the front row of every class, like loved school. But when people think back about, it's like, what did you really take out of college? I think it's mainly the relationships and the connections and even, you know, connections to people at my school who I even met after college. You know, you have that kind of bond of we both went to this place. So it's, I guess it wasn't so much of like, oh, I had this GPA, I got these grades that you really take away. It wasn't that. It was, here's how I grew in like my grit of of doing difficult classes or, and then here's how I grew in my relationships, which uh, being an entrepreneur, a lot of it is about relationships and how you relate to your team, how you are an ambassador outside for whatever you're doing. So yeah, those are the some of the things I took away. How can we get better at fostering connections and relationships? That's a big question. The first thing that comes to mind for the where, kind of where we are in our world right now is being present. And I don't know if it's, I've always worked from home. So being on a Zoom meeting, I'm used to that, but we're all probably on a lot more Zoom meetings these days with COVID and all that stuff. And it's really easy to just tune out or to try to multitask or do other things. And I was talking to an old friend yesterday and I had never, not never, but not a lot recently felt that someone was so present as he was in our conversation. And it reminded me that we need more of that. And I think that comes down a lot to like, to be honest, personal time management. So people might not think of putting up boundaries as a way to foster relationships, but the way I see it, you know, and and from my experience as an entrepreneur where you're juggling all these different things, it's really easy to feel like, well, I have to be multitasking and therefore I can't be present in this meeting right now because there's so many other things I have to do. But the truth is, if we were able to either cross things off of our priority list, you know, deprioritize some things, focus on less things, fewer things. 
And then we were able to be more present with the people that we're with, we would actually have the space to do that. Because again, I, I don't think people, and I've done it myself, I don't think people having that lack of being present is is on purpose necessarily. Like I think we often do it subconsciously. And often it's, you know, for the founders out there, it's because we feel that pressure of, oh, I have so many other things to do. But I think that art of being present is really rare nowadays. I think we need more of that, you know? And I think that's when you're building relationships or when you're trying to figure out what it means to be a good leader, you know, being present is really, really, uh, really crucial. It's just, yeah, that's just such a great point. And I think, especially in today's world, you know, when you've just got being on your phone that's sitting next mm-hmm. to you in the middle of a meeting or whatever it may be. And I think that, you know, it's just so easy. It's so easy yeah. for us to go, oh, I'll just quickly check that even though I'm doing this and I'm, let's look at that, et cetera. But I think, yeah, as you said, there's just so much value in actually being there with that person, actually, you know, taking that time. I think there's also a lot that can be said around like getting yourself into that mental state. You know, is there things that you do on a daily basis that kind of gets you into a state that you can, like can be present with the people that you're with, with your team, et cetera? Is there any like practical strategies you could give us? Sure. Well, I'm still working on it, but I think, <laughs> <Aren't> we all? <laughs> I think a big part of it is like that difference between responding and reacting, right? Because again, many of us are in high stress situations or we're juggling things. We feel overloaded. And there's, when we're with someone, there's this this feeling that we need to just react without thinking because it's quicker or it's faster or it's more efficient. Uh, but I think it's important to take time and realize that we have time to respond because you can take a pause. You can feel a little bit more in control of your response, you know? So something, I'm trying this new thing. I It's not proven by research that I know yeah. of, but I've been enjoying it. When I have a day that, this is going to be really weird, but whatever, <laughs> I love we're, it. we're in it. Um, we're in it. <laughs> so when I'm having a day where I know I have certain meetings, it's the morning and I know I have certain meetings that day that are going to stress me out. Like, you know, when you look at your calendar and mm. certain things race your heart rate, like you just <laughs> feel like a little panic or anxiety. So I've been trying this thing where when I work out in the morning, which I've been doing a rowing machine. So when I'm on my rowing machine, which is quite meditative, quite it's interesting. But when I'm on the machine or doing whatever workout, I think about those things that might trigger me to be stressed or anxious. And it, there's something about being active while thinking about those stressful triggers that I feel like helps me like with my mind-body connection a little bit to then, I mean, hopefully in the moment, feel a little bit more relaxed because it's kind of like you're, you've are you got this adrenaline and then the thing you're doing with your body allows you to let it out a little bit. Because sometimes when you're feeling stressed, you maybe just want to run a lap around the room or something, but maybe that's not appropriate for wherever whatever situation you're in. So just kind of like, almost like meditating on those things that would stress me out and raise my heart rate, but then releasing it through whatever I'm doing. So there's that. And then I think just trying to put stuff 
phones, computers on do not disturb as much as you can. I mean, there's always, it's so tough. And there's always Mm. a new gadget that's like, can get you your notification even faster. But I think just turning those things off and knowing like, it's okay. Like for most jobs, people are going to survive if you don't respond within like five minutes every time. (laughs) (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. No, I love that. That was, no, that was great. Amazing. I, I'm curious to know, and I want to dive deeper into the story and, and your progression into doing the research and then the business. But before I do, I'd love to know when there was a, you know, if there was a time that you felt completely, you know, almost maybe out of control, like you couldn't be present. Like, has there been a time in the last couple of years? Maybe it's been when you were running your business. Maybe it was in the earlier days of that, that you just felt like you just couldn't be present. Yeah. Oh, like a couple of days ago. I mean, it happens all the time. And, you know, like that feeling of panic where you feel just overloaded and like there's too much. And usually I bring it upon myself. So there's like recognizing that, you know, what's in my control. But yeah, I mean, that's, I think it's totally, totally natural, especially for people like us who, I feel like you're probably the same like to have a million projects going on, but it can be stressful. It can be too much sometimes. We need to like step back. I know. And so many of our peers out there listening, you know, we're all so similar where it's just like, what's next? What's the next? You know, what else could I be doing with my time? Even if I'm studying and and running a company or, or, you know, whatever it is, also trying to look after my family, whatever it may be, you know, what else could I be doing? And I think it's, 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 it's people like us that just have to almost take those breathers in that time and, and really have these, you know, practice these conscious things to, to get in the present moment. I'm yeah. learning so much. Honestly, this is just such good re- reiteration. <laughs> <laughs> Same for me too. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Amazing. So you did your whole college stint and obviously learned a lot and learned a lot about yourself during that time. And then I think the first thing out of college that you did was, was the research, working in the research lab at your university. You know, what was that experience like? And then how was the idea for I'm going to say it wrong, Marinus Analytics. Marinus. You know, how was the idea born and and what were the first few steps you took to really get that off the ground? Yeah. So when I was at Carnegie Mellon, I was really, I had been interested in the problem of human trafficking for a number of years since my teenage years and kind of just learning here and there when I could about it. But there wasn't a lot of resources out there. So it was a little difficult. But I um, was talking with a friend, actually, who went on to work at some of the big nonprofits around human trafficking. And we were talking about, okay, there's all this data on the internet. What if we could use some of it to help find those victims? And so I had basically no tech background. I, again, you know, was in the humanities, studying public policy, and but I had this this idea with my friend and it's like, could we use technology for good to do to help solve this problem? So I went to my advisor in the humanities and he said, Emily, this is a great idea, but I can't advise you on this because it's very technical and you need to talk to this list of people and find someone to be your technical advisor. So I basically wrote an email to, you know, five different people on the list and 
just kind of sent it off. And within the same day, it was just a couple hours after, one of them responded um, and he said, hey, this is very interesting. Come to my office tomorrow and let's talk about it. And so I was like, okay, wow, you know, this is cool uh, because he was in the Robotics Institute and very well-respected labs in that institute that were doing a lot of different cool research. And so went in, pitched my idea to him, met with him, and all of a sudden he's pulling in his research scientists and engineers and we're brainstorming. And I remember the distinct moment when I walked out of that meeting and I was standing there on the street and thinking, oh no, I'm really in over my head here. But then I remember thinking, but this is a great feeling and I need to follow this because there's something here. It was that edge of my comfort zone, basically. And uh, so I've kind of a little bit learned to identify that feeling again, you know, but it was just this feeling of, okay, I have to, this is very unknown what I'm going into, but I have to pursue this. And then it turned into my senior honors thesis, which turned into, I was offered a job at the lab as a research analyst after graduation. So it was kind of organic. You know, we started getting traction. We started talking to law enforcement all across the country who were really interested in how it could help their cases And then as far as the company side, so as you can imagine, I never set out to start a company and I did not consider myself an entrepreneur. I I thought, hey, if this is what I have to do to solve this problem, it's a means to an end for me, but it's not about being the CEO or like owning a company. It's about solving a problem, which I find is really a good For entrepreneurs, that's a good perspective um, because it keeps you focused on solving the problem. But about a year before that, maybe two years, I was taking a finances class and we were looking at financial statements of failed companies. And I remember saying, people who found companies are either delusional or they're idiots. This is ridiculous. I would never do this. Like too risky. Can you believe? (laughs) Yeah. So I uh, had to eat my words a little bit (laughs) because then I was doing it, you know, a year or two later. So that was a whole nother ball game because I came from this kind of researcher, recovering perfectionist perspective. And being an entrepreneur is so much about making decisions with limited information and pivoting and going into the unknown and taking calculated risks. And it was very uncomfortable for me. It was not really a natural like next step for me. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. I often think, is it really for any of us? I mean, I just don't think we realize, (sighs) you know, when we start how interesting and interestingly intense it really is. Yeah, (laughs) Um, it really is. Really interesting. Okay. So I think there's, there's so many questions that come out of that, but the first one that's really standing out for me is, you know, is that idea that literally two years before you were like, there is no way I would ever, you know, these people are crazy, you know, and then literally, you know, that ended up happening to you. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they're in a similar situation to you in your last kind of two years where you kind of, You've got this vision of what you want to go out and do and it's, you know, I'm, I'm guessing for you it was the, really the research stuff and the, more that somewhat safer trajectory and, and seeing where that took you and, and then, you know, 
kind of not really being maybe open to other things or other pathways, you know, what advice would you give? It almost comes back to being present in the sense of you have to learn to listen to those internal cues. It was really about following my passion and that passion is what has carried me through a lot of the difficult things that you have, that you encounter as an entrepreneur. But I know so many people who would have that voice in their mind or their heart, but they wouldn't listen to it because of the expectations of a parent or, you know, colleague or even themselves of, I should be this or I should do that. But the way I see it, what you get out of life really is a lot of what you spend your, most of your time doing. And so when looking at, and not to say being a lawyer is bad, I could totally be a lawyer in another life and I'm sure it would be fine. But what I looked at when I, what I noticed when I looked at that potential career path for myself was I didn't want to get into any sort of career path where I'm just working to maintain this status or this like how other people view me or a certain lifestyle or a certain facade because I just know that's not what satisfies if your whole life is based on what other people think of you, which I mean, all of ours are in some way, but if if that's where your value is, it's going to be really difficult. And even you know, another pitfall for entrepreneurs, which I've experienced myself, is when you start a company, you really feel that you are the company and the company is you and you you are one in identity. And I think there's a lot of that that's, that's necessary. You need to be committed. You need to be all in. It really is like your baby. It's your project. But if you are an entrepreneur for longer than a year, maybe two years, maybe three, it gets to the point where you will hit ups and downs. You will hit this roller coaster that is entrepreneurship. And if you, if there's no separation between you and your company, and this is, I'll just speak from my experience. What I found was that my emotions were all over the place all the time. I was just, I would read something in the news or hear about, you know, a competitor or something would go wrong in my day and it would just be everything would feel like it was coming crashing down. So I think part of the maturity that you learn just by being an entrepreneur over time is how your identity is separate from your company. And again, I think in that initial stage, I can see a benefit to kind of you are your company because it's so closely knit. But as you grow, I think it's important to grow your own separate identity because it'll help you weather those storms better. It'll help you have some perspective when something's going wrong. There's things that would literally put me in my bed in the fetal position, like crying. And I'm not joking. That is not hyperbole. That now I would be like, oh, that sucks okay, what's the next thing, you know? So I think that identity was really key to me. And not that I figured it out, but like still in the process of figuring out how is my identity connected to my company and how is it separate? Oh, it's just such a valid point. And I 
I'm completely a culprit of, you know, meshing the two all the time. And it's, yes. I find it so tough. <laughs> I really do. Yeah. To do that. I find it so, especially as a solo founder, I often find just, it's just almost like, this is me, but it's yes. not me. And it's, uh, uh, it's a push it's and hard. pull. It's hard. Yeah, tough. for sure. A question I've got for you, I found really interesting that you mentioned is around the expectations that we place on ourselves and almost what we what others expect of us, potentially our parents, those that we love, whatever it is, society, they place almost on us and we fully internalize that and then often make important life decisions based off that. You know, what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who maybe they're wrestling with this, you know, at the moment and maybe they're really struggling with, I've got this burning passion within me to actually go off and do something that may or may not work out. And then, you know, on the other side, but my parents really have been, have worked so hard their whole lives to get me to this point and I've, I've got to take that safe route. You know, what advice would you give to them? It's a really personal decision, of course. And I don't think there's always one way is the right decision. So there's this great book called Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. And it's about creativity. But even if you're not a full-time creative, quote-unquote, it's really a great book because it talks a lot about if you're putting something out into the world, whether it's a podcast or a book or a blog post or a tweet or whatever it is, it's scary when you're putting something out there or you're trying something new or you're taking a risk. And um, when I was starting my own podcast, just to give a specific example, it was kind of like, you put it into the world and you want everyone to love it and everyone to listen to it. But that is a lot of expectation of how other people who you can't control are going to react. And the way that in the book she talks about that creativity is like, basically, you have to be happy and enjoying simply the process of doing it. Because, and something she said was, uh, you know, I could write this book and it could help people, but I can't write the book just to help people because then its value will only be based on how other people receive it, which is completely out of my control, which is very anxiety inducing because you're trying to control things that you have no control over. So when I was thinking about, you know, putting a podcast out into the world, it was like, I know that I have to really enjoy the doing of it no matter what happens. And as long as I am enjoying that process, it's a success, really. Because again, we can try to get money or status or influence or whatever, but I think so much of our life's value that we get out of it is what do you spend your time doing day to day? And is it something that really feeds your soul, inspires you, builds up you as a person, that you feel like you're helping people in the way you want to help them. So I I would just think about that. Think about kind of making sure that there's some, I think it's a tension, right? Between like enjoying the journey and enjoying the destination. So it's not all about the journey, but I think a lot of it is because there's so many with with careers, for instance, there's so many outcomes we can't control. Um, so I think making sure that you enjoy the process is a big part of it. So if 
if you know you feel this pressure to be a doctor but you hate everything about that process and the only thing that would make you feel good about it is if you were the top five surgeons in your country or something like that you know maybe think about that you're going to spend you know years of your life putting effort into something that you hate maybe think about what you would enjoy regardless of the outcome um now goals and outcomes are important as well um and there's different levels to which we can control what that is so that's what i would think about is kind of that tension between the end goal and the journey and just making sure that you enjoy something you're doing something you really enjoy because like i said there's so many with my entrepreneurial experience, there's so many like bumps and challenges and headaches and and you really want to be doing it for something that you care about, that you really care about. How can we find something that we really care about? I think it's, again, listening to yourself as far as what resonates for you. So when I was, I first came into contact with human trafficking when I was traveling through Eastern Europe as a teenager came across some trafficking there. And it was like, I almost couldn't stop thinking about it. And so when you come across, and it doesn't have to be a social cause even, it could be a, you know, a job or I don't know, an area of research. But if there's something that keeps you up at night, something that you keep thinking about, something that you keep telling other people about, listen to that. I almost want to say you can make a job out of anything these days. It's kind of true. <laughs> With like modern technology, there's people who, you know, do blogs only about, you know, some very specific things. So if you have that voice or that thing that keeps coming up in your head, pursue it, you know, get to learn about it. It doesn't even have to be this big deal of, well, I guess that's going to be my career now. If you're, especially if you're young and you're new to it, just talk to people who are also interested in it. Talk to people in that industry. Take some pressure off of yourself. Just learn about it until it becomes boring. And if it's not boring, then keep going. <laughs> so true. I, I, yeah. <laughs> Uh, so much of this is resonating with me and I'm sure I'm so many of our peers out there listening are just nodding their heads as I'm, you know, you can't see me, but I'm nodding my head like crazy as I <laughs> listen to all of this goodness. I want to, we've touched on so many different things, but I'm absolutely loving it, but I want to kind of dive a bit deeper into something that I like to call the dark side of business. So you kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, the passion has gotten you through those really kind of tough times. And, you know, talk to us about those early days. I mean, now you're six years in, you know, you're so much has happened, so much amazingness. But, you know, when you were really just trying to get the business off the ground, or maybe you'd gotten that first round of funding or whatever it was, talk to us about the dark side of business for you and how you've come to navigate that. Well, I mean, when you say dark side of business, a lot of what comes to mind is that personal management because burnout is such a big thing. And I hate to see it, but I've had it myself multiple times. One of the dark sides is that because you're so passionate about that topic or whatever, you will give your life for it, basically. You will work yourself to the bone. You will put in all the hours and there's definitely a time and a place for working hard and sprinting. But for me, when I was trying to do that sprinting mentality for 
a year, you know, two years. It's impossible. I mean, you can't run yourself into the ground. And what people maybe don't realize at first, but then you realize later, is that me putting in my own structure, boundaries, schedule, you know, personal development practices is actually going to help my company because it's going to keep me in there longer rather than burning out, you know? And, and it is, especially when you have a social impact issue, you feel like, oh, there's people who need help. You know, I need to work harder. But if you burn yourself out, you're not going to be there to to help or to make a difference. So it was, and it was very counterintuitive to, to for me because I'm a very burn myself out type of person. And my husband is very like slow and steady wins the race. And so he really helped me because it was so counterintuitive for me, like putting in these little boundaries, even if, even if you're just starting your business and it's just you, obviously find what time, what time of day you can work best and all that. But for me, it was starting and ending my day at the same time, putting my lunch break on my calendar, you know, putting those boundaries and not checking my email on weekends because you need to protect your own psyche and your ability to function. And another thing is that it took me a couple of years before I realized that me working on my own kind of personal professional development is valuable to my company. And, and, you know, as a sort of recommendation to the listeners, don't save your learning for your off time. So what I mean by that is it might feel selfish to get some personal development book or business book that you think is going to help yourself grow and do that during your working entrepreneurial hours. And obviously, everyone has a different job situation. So I'm not saying like, if you're not allowed to read a book on your job to do that, but if you do have that autonomy, realizing like, hey, me investing in myself as a leader, taking care of my own sanity, it's going to help me make sure my team is staying sane, make sure that they're not burning out, you know, growing a team as leaders. Because if you have, if, if you have a company, you don't want to be the only one leading. You want to bring up people to lead. So just realizing that that's not a selfish thing that actually translates to your own self care, you know, translates to your company. It makes you less frantic and stressed. So you're better able to lead. It makes your team feel less frantic because they're absorbing your stress. So things like that are really important when you're thinking about how do I become not just a CEO or a manager or whatever, how do I become a leader? So good. I actually <laughs> love this. Amazing. Look, I, we could talk for days and I've, I am mindful of your time though. And so I've got a couple of final few questions for you. The first one is what has been your greatest failure, either personally or professionally, throughout this entrepreneurial journey to date? There's been a lot, as I'm sure you hear people say a lot. This might be a non-traditional answer, but I think it. what comes to mind is not realizing fast enough when your role has evolved. And what I mean by that is it could be one of maybe two things. Either 
realizing that whatever role you're in has evolved and needs you to evolve with it. So that could be, you know, I started my company as a sole proprietor and now I have two employees and I need to change kind of my roles express themselves in my company because you start, you know, I talked to a, a venture capitalist recently about this. You start your company by yourself. Many people do. And there's, you're wearing 10 hats and you're doing everything. And I personally, I love that time in a startup. It's really fun. It's, you're on the ground. It's kind of scrappy and you're figuring things out. But then the, the things that your role requires of you change when you have two employees, five employees, you're starting to think about HR, you're probably figuring out more legal structures, you're doing some of the scaling stuff. And so it would be to either recognize that, and for me, recognize sooner that, hey, I need to evolve with my company, I need to scale myself and kind of change the roles that I have, or realizing, hey, this role isn't for me anymore. Let me step back. And I actually did that in 2018, about two years ago. So I was CEO of our company for the first four years. It was really that scrappy time. It was the that fun. To me, it's fun when there's just one or two people and you're figuring it out and you're in the ring fighting it out yourself. <laughs> That's but me then, right now. Yes, I love it. I love it, Michelle. Um, so that's such a fun time. And, you know, I think different people like different stages more than others, but I, I love that stage. But then you start to grow your team. You start to like, we started to uh, look at industries outside of our current application. We looked at solving other problems in addition to human trafficking. And I hit this point, and I, I think I did okay, but I probably could have done it so- sooner. I hit this point where I was thinking, okay, as CEO, I'm supposed to set this vision for the future. Where are we going as a company? And all I could think about was the human trafficking. I couldn't get my head out of that into other, like, what is another thing? What is the future that we're going to add to this? What is the vision? And my partner, who we've been, you know, pretty much equal partners this whole time, she was our COO and she had all these ideas and she's like, we could do this, we could do that. I could see this future. I could see that future. And I just really felt like, you know, I think she is going to lead so much more effectively when she's the one with the vision and she can lead, I, I almost felt like if, if she has the vision, but I'm trying to lead it, it's almost going to be like telephone, you know, like I'm not going to be able to give it the, the inspiration and the passion that it needs. And, you know, as strange as it would sound, I kind of fired myself as CEO. I said, you know what? I need to be in another role. And so it ended up, I moved to president, she moved to CEO. Again, we're still a very collaborative team, but there needs to be someone who, the buck stops with them, kind of veto power, who is saying, okay, this is the vision. And yeah, so I think there's a lot of, it, it might be hard for people to step out of a role or move laterally into a different role, but I think it's really powerful when you can recognize what your strengths are, again, what you enjoy, if you're seeing the vision or if you're not. And obviously that can ebb and flow with time as well, but just kind of figuring out where your best role is with your skills, how you can best help the company. So for for other companies, it might be like, hey, I was a starter and I really enjoyed starting it, but now we need to scale. And I don't enjoy that. I don't like 
that part of things. So let me bring on someone who does enjoy that. So just realizing that as a founder, you have that flexibility and you don't, you don't always have to do everything forever. You can think about what you enjoy most doing, what roles you enjoy, which ones you feel fit your skills and be open in those conversations with, if you have co-founders or if you have people you're thinking about hiring, be open in those conversations about, here's what I enjoy. Here's what I would like to do more of. Here's where my skill is. That's really different from anyone else on the team. And here's the things that maybe we should think about hiring in this area. Or, you know, are you willing to take these on? Because I think you could do them better than I could. So I guess putting away the ego, because then you can make sure that you enjoy your role to its fullest and kind of shape the role that you really want to have. Oh, that is so powerful. And I think just you just touched on like all of those points. I think that it's so, it takes so much strength, you know, to go, wow, I I actually might not be suited for this role. And I actually think I'll add more value here. And then that, you know, may align better with what I'm doing. It takes so much strength. So I so commend you on that. Like that is not an easy feat. Amazing. So look, over the last few years, Emily, you've, you've really gone from strength to strength. You've received so much recognition for your work. You know, you were recognized on the Forbes 30 under 30 list. You were one of entrepreneurs, most powerful women. You've been featured, featured at the United Nations and across various media publications. You know, you're also the host, as you mentioned, of your own podcast now, the Empower Podcast, where you interview CEOs and founders. You know, what are three key pieces of advice that you'd give our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? It's going to be really hard. <laughs> if you're a founder, don't give up when you hit roadblocks. Those are completely natural, whether that's you know, a roadblock, a business roadblock, or whether it's someone telling you that you're never going to succeed or whatever it is, know that those will come. And that's totally, totally normal. Secondly, I think like success, we look at entrepreneurs and we think, oh, that person is brilliant, or they have the Mark Zuckerberg gene, or they are just a genius. For the most part, if not completely, That is not what brings success. What brings success is being in, I talked about that ring before. It's from one of my favorite Roosevelt quotes called the man in the ring, or as I like to call it, the woman in the ring. And it's basically saying it doesn't matter who criticizes you when they're standing on the sidelines because you're the one in that boxing ring, fighting it out. You're the one with the dust and the blood and the sweat on your face. You're the one in it. If someone else is alongside you and they have the credibility to give you some feedback, great, but don't be disheartened by those who are just sitting on the sidelines and giving, you know, even well-intentioned feedback. Listen to the feedback, but know that you're the one who's actually in there, who's going through the tough things, who's learning. And then, yeah, I guess the last one would be make sure that you scale yourself as your company grows. Make sure that you take the time to to develop yourself because, again, people might see that as selfish. I really don't think it is. I think you need to develop yourself as you develop your company, and some of that will just come naturally from doing it. But other times, you might want to be more intentional. You might even want to uh, 
like a little tip that I thought was really cool is if you don't know, if you feel a little bit adrift, you feel like you don't know how you're doing, say you just started a company and you're feeling overwhelmed and you don't know how well you're doing or you feel a little bit directionless or you're maybe even thinking, what am I good at? You know, I'm doing 10 things. What what am I even good at? A little tip would be to either go to some trusted either mentors or peers and say, what do you think is my biggest strength? Um, This could even be just a little email. I mean, it doesn't even take any time. It could either be like, what is my biggest strength? Where do you think I add the most value? Or it could even be as simple as if you're looking for, like we talked about before, what is my passion? You can go to some trusted friends and say, you know, when you think of me, what do you think of? What is something that I'm talking about a lot? What topic makes you think of me? And you might even hear, I've heard people do this and hear things that are unexpected that they might not even see because we all have blind spots. And I find that's really helpful for bringing perspective and kind of like reorienting us to like reality a little bit. Like, what are my strengths? What am I good at? There's things we're all good at. There's strengths that we all have. And so having someone on the outside kind of look in and tell us can be really helpful. I love it. Look, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Emily, for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, for really showing us, you know, especially us, you know, women that, that we can go out there and achieve what we want to, we want to achieve and we can follow our passion and we can actually turn that into a viable business and company. And for that, we really appreciate you. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you to your listeners. And I love, I love having these types of conversations. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> of course. So our final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast, and that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? To me, it's really about how do you want to spend your life? You know, when you get to the end of your life, it's usually not the accolades or the labels or the titles or the money. It's, are you really satisfied with how you spent your time? That's one of the things that's that I love most about entrepreneurship is this autonomy to do what you care about or spend your time the way you want to spend it. So I think that's the value is how do you spend your time? You know, that is really our time is invaluable. We can't get it back. So are you doing things with your time? And again, it, it doesn't matter what other people, whether, whether other people think it's valuable or cool or um, respectable, it's do you really find value and satisfaction in what you're doing? Does it make you want to get up in the morning? Does it bring light to your life? Does it bring light to others' lives? So that's where I think the value is. Oh, I love it. Emily, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, we have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and your company? Sure. You can find me on my website, emilykennedy.org. I'm on most social platforms at Hey Emily Kennedy. And then you can find me talking with female founders on the Empower <laughs> Podcast. Love it. Amazing. We'll link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much again, Emily. It's been so awesome. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Peers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. 
We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.